Welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Well, we're here, the ninth and final episode of the Dutch Revolt. You know, it was meant to be a two-parter biography of William the Silent and his son Maurice. So it goes. After this, I'll take a break and end the season and not come back until hopefully early next year. But for now, we'll spend this episode looking at Frederick Henry, the youngest son of William, the new Prince of Orange after his half-brother Maurice's death, and the man who took the Dutch right up to its final steps in its war for independence, although he really only made it to year 79 of the conflict. This is the Dutch Revolt Part 9, Frederick Henry and the End of the Eighty Years' War, and this is the Almost Forgotten. Frederick Henry was born in Delft in January of 1584, just about six months before his father, William the Silent, was assassinated. His mother, Louise, was the daughter of Gaspard de Coligny, who was probably the leading political and military advisor to King Charles IX of France. But Gaspard was also a Huguenot and was the most notable victim of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Louise herself was a well-respected woman and was considered intelligent, influential, and important after the death of her husband. Maurice, who was the son of that Anna of Saxony who had lost her mind and died in prison, is said to have relied on his stepmother Louise for advice. One could imagine, despite the lack of an actual royal family in a country called the Republic of the Seven Netherlands, that she was sort of an influential queen mother type after her husband's death. She sent her son Frederick Henry to be educated at Leiden, although Maurice allowed him to spend time each year in military camp with him before the Twelve Years' Truce was signed. By the time he was a teenager, he was given commands of small forces, and he acquitted himself with courage and significant talent for leadership. When Maurice was on the beaches of Newport, that battle which ended a hair's breadth from defeat and leaving the entire republic wide open for conquest, the stadholder tried to send his half-brother away on one of those ships that he wouldn't let the rest of his troops board. He didn't want William's house to die out that day and thought the 16-year-old should escape to safety. Frederick Henry refused and instead is said to have fought bravely and in the thick of it all. While this might not have been the best move to keep the family name going, it did wonders for the young man's popularity. He survived the battle and was soon more ingrained with his brother's military plans. After the truce was signed, he tried to regulate some of his older brother's responses to the religious issues that plagued the Republic. He preached moderation, and attempted to stand as a regulating force between Oldenbarnevelt, along with the independent-minded states of Holland, and Maurice with the States General. Historian George Edmondson writes that Frederick Henry recognized Quote, Maurice was no more an ambitious and unscrupulous self-seeker than Barnevelt was a scheming traitor anxious to maintain himself in power even at the expense of his country's liberty, unquote. In other words, at a time when the two sides were accusing each other of being monsters, he saw them as both doing what they believed was good and just. 
but he wasn't able to prevent Maurice from allowing Oldenbarnevelt's execution, although he did stay on good terms with his half-brother. By the time the truce ended and the war resumed, Frederick Henry was in his mid-thirties. He worked closely with Maurice and participated in the early battles of the resumed conflict. In 1624, when Spinola was besieging Breda and Maurice was on his deathbed in The Hague, it was obvious that Frederick Henry was the next in line to lead the Netherlands. Maurice, though a lifelong bachelor himself and the father of children with at least four different women, decided that he needed Frederick Henry to get married in order to ensure a legitimate heir for one of William's sons. Frederick Henry although involved in some sort of relationship with a German noblewoman, was also not that interested in the bonds of marriage. When Maurice threatened to instead get married himself, thereby legitimizing his own children, in essence disinheriting Frederick Henry from his titles, the younger man conceded. On April 4th, however reluctantly, he was married, and it seemed to be a happy marriage, by the way. Amalia of Solms-Braunfels was an intelligent woman who helped elevate the House of Orange-Nassau to even higher levels of European nobility. Maurice died within a month of the marriage, and Frederick Henry, out in the field to begin his duties as commander of the Dutch forces, had to return to The Hague. There in the capital, he was elected to all sorts of titles like Stadtholder of Holland, Zeeland, Utrecht, and Gelders, and Head of the Council of State, and all the other things that they had called Maurice. By this point, it is generally considered that the Dutch Golden Age was in full swing. The movement of all those merchants and artisans from Antwerp, as well as Bruges and Ghent, to Amsterdam, had pretty much been complete. They eventually added to this by taking in refugees, Jews from the Iberian Peninsula and Huguenots from France. Although, while the Jews and other non-Calvinists weren't persecuted, they were still treated with suspicion but it was generally considered a freer and more open society than its neighbors. Their colonial holdings contributed greatly to their golden age. In 1609, the VOC had gotten maybe their most ambitious and successful governor-general, and maybe their most violent one, Jan Peter Zuncohen. Soon after, the VOC controlled the Banda Islands, which meant monopolistic control of nutmeg and mace, and the death or enslavement of the vast majority of the natives there. They also controlled Batavia, modern Jakarta, Indonesia, and were a premier power in the region. In 1627, Peter Minuit, a Calvinist Walloon, decided as director of New Netherland to move its capital to the island of Manhattan and arrange the purchase of that territory. And in 1630, they had even moved into South America to begin their two-and-a-half-decade rule of territory in northeast Brazil. And of course, there was the flourishing of intellectual and scientific thought associated with the Dutch Golden Age. Hugo Grotius had already written the Foundations of International Law at the University of Leiden. Founded by William the Silent, the university, called A Bulwark of Humanist Scholarship by Arthur Westein, was one of the centers of this movement. In 1625, when Frederick Henry took over, Rembrandt, born in Leiden in 1606, was opening his first studio and would, before the decade was out, become a favorite artist of the stadtholder. René Descartes had served as a mercenary under Maurice, 
and Descartes would fully move to Holland in 1629, publishing all of his major works, extremely influential in the development of the Enlightenment, in the two decades he spent living there. That year, the great scientist and astronomer Christian Huygens was born in The Hague. The artist Vermeer was born in Delft in 1632. And that same year, a giant on par with Descartes, also on the very short list of Enlightenment foundational philosophers, Baruch Spinoza, was born in Amsterdam. After Frederick Henry was given all those titles of the leader of the Dutch Republic, he set out to work. First, he tried to undo some of the religious strife that had been created over the last decade, and basically said that the nation would have its state religion, the version of Calvinism it already used, but that other religions, including the Calvinist offshoot that Olden Barneveld had practiced, would be tolerated. No actual laws were changed, but the new Prince of Orange helped ease the tensions and ratchet down any animosity by taking this position. Then, he had to actually go about stopping the invasion of the United Provinces. It would not be an easy task, despite the successes Boris had seen throughout his three decades in power. Maurice had also helped start the Thirty Years' War, and the Dutch position was tenuous. According to Edmondson, quote, when he stepped into his brother's place, he found that the United Provinces occupied a position at once of great danger and critical importance. The Protestants of Germany were on the point of being crushed by the superior forces of the House of Habsburg and the Catholic League, and looked eagerly toward the Netherlands, if not for actual aid, at least for such a diversion as would prevent the Spanish monarch from lending assistance to his Austrian relative. The Netherlanders themselves, on the other hand, without an ally on whom they could rely, were exposed to the risk of being overwhelmed should the imperial armies take them in flank while still engaged in a deadly struggle with their old enemies, unquote. Thankfully for the Dutch, though, the political situation would change. The great Cardinal Richelieu became the chief minister to Louis XIII in 1624. Despite Richelieu's title, red robes, and religious beliefs, he thought France needed to use its position to check the growing strength of the Habsburg empires even if it meant allying with the Protestants in the Netherlands and in Germany. He proved prescient as France and the Bourbon dynasty emerged as the great power in Europe after the war. Back in the Low Countries, though, Breda was still under siege. Frederick Henry brought an army of over 25,000, but after an unsuccessful assault on Spinola's besieging army, he realized any further attacks would be useless. Breda would have to surrender, and it did, with honorable terms, in 1625. There wasn't much military activity in the Low Countries for the next few years. The Dutch were sick of war, and Frederick Henry couldn't raise many troops. The States General essentially agreed to keep a defensive position, although if the Spanish had attacked, it isn't clear that the Dutch even really had enough men for that. The Spanish had priorities elsewhere, though, and weren't giving Spinola what he needed to invade. Frederick Henry's wife Amalia, however, did give birth to a son, William. He would eventually become William II and inherit the roles and titles of his father. Meanwhile, a deal was worked out with the French. Cardinal Richelieu helped fund the Dutch war efforts, and in return the Dutch helped by sending warships against French Huguenot rebels. So, the Catholic priest was aiding the Protestant Dutch in their war against the Catholic Spanish and Germans, 
in return for the Protestant Dutch helping the Catholic French government against Protestant French rebels. The modern era has truly begun. In 1627, Frederick Henry marched out with around 20,000 troops to the eastern Netherlands, and in July he laid siege to the city of Grohl, today's Groenlo. A small city in a strategically important position, the Dutch built a 16-kilometer wall surrounding the city and entrenched themselves. Count Vandenberg, a nephew of William the Silent in the service of the Spanish, led an army slightly larger than the Republican force. They tried to break through, but after a close call were pushed back and were unable to dislodge Frederick Henry. The Dutch continued to attack the city, and on the 18th of August, one of Maurice's sons, William, was hit with a bullet and died soon after. But the garrison in the city knew it was only a matter of time. On August 19th, a truce was signed, allowing an honorable capitulation of the city. It was really the first major military victory for the United Provinces since the truce. And the city of Grunlo, or Grohl, returned to Dutch hands for good, which is why today, Grolsch is a Dutch beer. Frederick Henry then set out to build more forts along the various borders in order to create a more defensible frontier. It took until 1629 for him to make another attempt at a big prize. This time, with the knowledge that Spinola was off in Spain, he gathered a large group of forces and after several feints, made a quick march towards the city of Sertogenbos. He arrived at this large and prosperous city in northern Brabant at the end of April, ready to face a garrison 3,000 strong. The defenders were surprised. Although this was the biggest and most important of their strongholds in what was essentially Dutch territory, most expected Frederick Henry to go after the other one, the recently lost Breda. The Prince of Orange then did something that would surely have made his father proud, leading a master class in siege work. The city was surrounded by swamps, so Frederick Henry built 40 kilometers of dikes up around it. Then he used mills to drain out the water. He basically did what the Hollanders had done for years to reclaim land, but as part of a siege. As the swamp dried out, he moved his trenches closer to the city walls. Count Vandenberg assembled a huge army of over 30,000 to again attempt to dislodge Frederick Henry. It was assumed his position was too indefensible, and that he'd retreat once confronted. But it was a lot of work to drain out that land. He wasn't going to give up so easily. Instead, he dammed up the two rivers coming into Sir Tokenbosch and ran them around his entrenchments, creating defensive canals surrounding his forces. By the time Vandenberg arrived, it was too late. There was nowhere he could attack that wasn't easily defended. So instead, he packed up and marched deeper into the Netherlands. Frederick Henry sent a detachment under his cousin Ernst Casimir to harass the Spanish forces and to try and deprive him of provisions. And luckily, the Dutch learned of a fort that was holding only a skeleton crew, as much of the garrison was with Vandenberg. They quickly took it, and the Spanish army had to fall back, their communication and supply lines now cut. Sir Togenbosch held out a bit longer, but in September, it capitulated. This was a big victory for the Dutch. The city was mostly Catholic, well defended, and a point of pride for the Habsburgs, located so deep in northern Brabant. The news gave the Netherlands a euphoric feeling, and people, including visiting dignitaries, came out to watch the surrender. 
Edmondson writes that this included, quote, the Princess of Orange and the Queen of Bohemia, the King of Bohemia, the Duke of Württemberg, and the Prince of Denmark, besides a crowd of smaller German princes and French and English nobles, unquote. At this point, both sides were utterly exhausted. The Spanish no longer had real leadership in the Habsburg Netherlands. Spinola had been reassigned, going down to deal with a war of succession in the Duchy of Mantua, not far from his birthplace of Genoa. But he was 60 years old and in ill health, and died soon after. The war, however, was not over. In 1631, a large group, more than 6,000 men, on 35 large ships and additional smaller ones, sailed from Antwerp to try to break the blockade and take one of the larger islands in Zealand. The Zealanders and Hollanders scrambled to get together a bunch of ships and ended up with about 50 of them to trail the Spanish force. The Dutch, outnumbered, came within reach and attacked on the waters in the Rhine-Muschelt Delta. The fighting lasted throughout the night, and eventually, the Spanish fleet was demolished. Men dove into the water to flee, but the Zealand cavalry was waiting to capture them. Hundreds drowned or were killed, and over 5,000 of the Spanish soldiers were taken as prisoners. The following year, Frederick Henry set out to capture Maastricht, an important city on the Meuse River that sits essentially at the same latitude as Brussels, to the east smacking between Brussels and Cologne. The Prince of Orange took some 21,000 soldiers and captured a few smaller towns on the way, arriving in June. His cousin, Ernst Casimir, the stadtholder of Friesland, Groningen, and Drenthe, and a well-respected commander, was killed in one of the smaller sieges, and was succeeded by his 20-year-old son, Henry Casimir. The Spanish responded and pulled an army from Germany of similar size to try to prevent the siege. But Frederick Henry and his men worked tirelessly to keep the siege going, and his lines were too well enforced and defended to break. It was a rough go, though, and the English Earl of Oxford, part of this allied army that the Dutch relied upon, was killed in the fight. Another relief force showed up, and they began to work on starving out the attacking Dutch. But although surrounded, Frederick Henry had provisions enough. Apparently, a Spanish marquis sent in a trumpeter on one of those normal diplomatic missions that we don't really hear about but happen all the time, and Orange asked this man what the marquis thought about it all. The man replied, The marquis doesn't know how you're going to get out of here, even if you do take Maastricht. Frederick Henry is reported to have quietly said something like, On top of your asses, but then smiled and replied, quote, Did he say that, trumpeter? Well, we must see, we must see, but in any case, let us take the town first, unquote. Soon enough, a mine under one of the walls was blown up, and the English forces entered the breach. They fought throughout the evening, and while the city wasn't taken, they realized any more resistance was probably only going to make the terms of the surrender more difficult. They surrendered, and Maastricht fell into Dutch hands. If you look at a map of the Netherlands today, Maastricht is at the heart of that little area in the southeast that dips below the rest of the country, nuzzled in between Belgium and Germany. So how was Frederick Henry going to get out of it now? Well, turns out then and there, the Spanish were interested in negotiating some sort of truce, one which was favorable to the Dutch Republic. But the States General said it had to occur in The Hague, not in the Prince's camp in Maastricht. That's fine, 
This is a republic we're talking about here. But the delay let the moment slip away. That's because the following year, Gustavus Adolphus, the Swedish king who was taking it to the Habsburgs all over northern Germany, was killed. He had built upon the military reforms embraced by Maurice and improved upon them, and was known as, along with Maurice, one of the leading innovators of the military tactics of the era. His death eased the pressure on the Spanish cause in general, and may have reduced enthusiasm for a treaty. And then, in 1633, the Spanish ruler of the Netherlands, Isabella, the daughter of Philip and wife of the Archduke, also died. The Spanish Netherlands passed back into the hands of direct Spanish control, and the Dutch were wary of any sort of deal directly with the Spanish. Behind the scenes, though, the Dutch were working on an alliance, and by 1635, they had negotiated a treaty with France, just in time for a new governor-general of the Spanish Netherlands, Cardinal Infante Ferdinand. Cardinal Infante Ferdinand, by the way, was a son of King Philip III, and Infante is just the Spanish term for a prince who was the child of the ruler. So Cardinal Prince Ferdinand sounds more normal to me, but we'll probably just stick with Ferdinand at this point. The French brought in a massive army, and together with the Dutch, they were nearly 50,000 strong. They invaded the Spanish Netherlands, and in June, tried to take the city of Leuven. The siege wore on a few weeks, but Frederick Henry couldn't take the town. A relief army came to aid the Spanish, and the invaders, with their massive army, were running out of food. So they retreated back towards the Republic. The Spanish, under Ferdinand, countered strongly against the retreating force. He took several cities in the latter half of 1635, opening up a path towards the Dutch heartland. Frederick Henry returned fire by retaking, over the course of a nine-month siege that lasted through the winter, the fort of Schenk with its strategic location at the confluence of the Rhine and the Wall Rivers. In 1636, the Spanish, ever distracted, turned their attention to France and pushed towards Paris, but eventually returned to the Low Countries when, after much French sivu playing, Frederick Henry put together a force to threaten Brabant. He didn't invade, but it did the trick enough to make Ferdinand return to Brussels. The following year, the Prince of Orange gathered another large force in an attempt on Dunkirk. It didn't go as planned, and the fleet he had gathered suffered in bad weather. With no sign of a change in the bad weather, with the armies in Flanders now gathering to stop him, on July 20th, Frederick Henry gave orders to sail in the other direction, up the rivers. They arrived that day at his chosen destination and marched out, reaching the Nassau family holding of Breda in northern Brabant on July 21st. He began the siege and, as usual, he encircled the city and set himself up in a defensive position. Ferdinand marched out, but couldn't do much to stop the Dutch, so he tried to invade the United Provinces, hoping that would pull the prince away. He was able to take the city of Venlo, but then a French invasion force gathered, which prevented him from going too far. After an 11-week siege, the garrison in the city surrendered, with full military honors. This set the borders of the country to much of what we see today. According to Edmondson, quote, the fall of Breda caused the greatest joy throughout the United Provinces, for it was the last place of importance within their boundaries which was in the hands of the Spaniards, unquote. 
The following year was plagued by infighting and power struggles between the States General and the States of Holland, and the Prince of Orange tried to enforce trade embargoes against the Spanish, but the merchants of Amsterdam would have none of it. He was frustrated, so he turned his attention to the capture of Antwerp. In 1638, he pulled together another large army and sent off a detachment of 6,000 ahead of the main force to capture a nearby fort. The fort was seized by William of Nassau, the grandson of John of Nassau, the eldest of William the Silent's younger brothers. Ferdinand scrambled to defend Antwerp and brought about 8,000 soldiers to take on this leading force. William had received information that in addition to the army ahead, there was a fleet behind him, and he decided to abandon the fort. Now fleeing in fear of becoming encircled, the Dutch troops were attacked by Ferdinand and completely routed. It turned into a panic, or maybe it started out that way. Only about a thousand of the troops escaped. Half of the 5,000 who didn't escape were killed or wounded, the other half were captured. It was one of the few real set-piece battles of the war, and it ended any attempts on Antwerp for the Dutch. The year didn't end any better for the Stadtholder and the Republic. Ferdinand was able to break the French siege of Saint-Omer, not far from Dunkirk, and then was able to break up a siege that Frederick Henry tried to conduct on the city of Geldern. The next year went much better for the United Provinces, maybe because despite the military genius of Maurice and his son, the biggest battle occurred in the place where the Dutch fought best, at sea. In 1639, a new Spanish armada arrived on the scene, gathered in Galicia late in the previous year. It was intended to break the Dutch blockade of the Spanish Netherlands, as well as deliver fresh troops, as war with France had prevented their ability to march troops up from Burgundy through to Luxembourg, the way Alba and Farnese had done. In February, near Dunkirk, the Dutch Admiral Martin Tromp engaged with a small Spanish fleet trying to rendezvous with the Armada. Tromp defeated the Spanish in the battle, but with heavy losses, and was forced to end his blockade, and after some amount of time, the Spanish in Dunkirk were able to sail out. That summer, they gathered with the larger Spanish fleet. In mid-September, Tromp was made aware of the presence of the combined forces near Calais, and engaged with a much larger fleet. He had only 12 vessels to their nearly 70, but he was reinforced with another five or so from Zeeland. Sources conflict as to whether or not he also waited for some ships trying to blockade Dunkirk under the command of Admiral De Witt. Either way, he was outnumbered more than two to one, possibly closer to three to one, when he did engage. The action wasn't decisive in that only one ship was lost, a Dutch vessel. It is considered significant because it is often stated that Tromp used a line of battle for the first time in history, although evidence suggests one may have been used at least a few times in the previous century. But it is also significant because the Spanish retreated to the Downs, a sheltered sea area right off the coast of Kent in England. The English, now officially operating in a position of neutrality, were not averse to helping the Spanish give the Dutch a black eye at sea. By this point, the Dutch and English, sharing the waters of the southern region of the North Sea, had become quite the maritime rivals. Tromp begged for reinforcements, and he stayed at sea to try and keep the Spanish on the English coast while waiting for said reinforcements. Again from Edmondson, 
Quote, the whole of Holland and Zealand had become one vast shipbuilding yard. On all sides, the fisherfolk and sailors offered themselves for service. The wharves and the docks re-echoed with the dins of hammers and the bustle and clatter of hurrying feet and ceaseless preparation. Such indeed was the vigor with which the work was pushed on that, in the words of an eyewitness, the vessels seemed not to be built but to grow of themselves and to be at once filled with sailors. Unquote. Less than a month after Tromp asked for reinforcements, he was commanding a fleet of around a hundred ships. He then sailed straight for the Spanish, leaving some of his fleet under DeWitt to keep an eye on the neutral English and make sure they didn't get involved. Surrounding the passages out of the Downs, the Dutch then engaged and were able to win a decisive victory, although the losses were probably exaggerated but at least a dozen Spanish vessels were sunk or run aground, and it was another hammer blow to the Spanish naval power. Most of the ships from Dunkirk were able to escape in a fog, and in the end, many troops were still delivered. But it solidified the supremacy of the Dutch at sea, and it made it understood in Madrid just how difficult resupplying the Spanish Netherlands was becoming. It was also a blow to English pride, as well as Anglo-Dutch relations. The Downs were English territory, near the cliffs of Dover, in front of the important harbor town of Deal. It was a violation of English neutrality for the Dutch to attack there, and it really was an embarrassment to the English that they couldn't do much to prevent it. It took some diplomacy by Frederick Henry to keep his relations with the English cordial, and eventually they moved past it, but not before there was talk of King Charles I having to put to bed the scandal of the Downs if things were to move forward. Move forward they did, though, and Charles eventually agreed to have his daughter marry Frederick Henry's son, William. Now, in early 1640, Charles was still trying to send his younger daughter to the Netherlands and marry his eldest to the Spanish court. But Dutch diplomacy won out, or maybe just the marriage with the Spanish heir fell through, and in the summer of that year, the older daughter, Princess Mary, was agreed to be wed to young William. At only eight years old, she obviously did none of the agreeing herself, although if she was 19, she probably wouldn't have had any more say in the whole affair. The following year, in 1641, an almost 15-year-old William went to England to meet his now 9-year-old fiance. He was received warmly and gave all the necessary speeches to the king and queen, although not to the princess herself, who was ill at the time. In a rather cute story, especially compared to everything else we're talking about here, it seems he was escorted to her room to finally meet her, and Charles I, as well as his wife Henrietta Maria, hid in the room to watch the two little lovebirds see each other for the first time. William stayed in London for a week, getting to know Mary better, and wrote letters home to Dad saying that they had warmed up to each other, and he was very much in love. They were married in the Palace of Whitehall on May 12th, and then William returned to Holland without his bride, although she and her mother followed later in the year. It was, in many ways, all a validation of just how far the House of Orange-Nassau had reached in the hierarchy of European royalty. That year, as well as the next few years that followed, didn't have any major actions in the Low Countries. Frederick Henry did try to mount a few offensives, but the Spanish were happy to play a defensive game right now and not much came of anything. Unfortunately, Henry Casimir, stadtholder of Friesland, Groningen, and Drenthe, at the time 28 years old, 
was killed like his father Ernst in a small skirmish. Frederick Henry pushed for his own inheritance of the titles in an effort to consolidate executive power in the United Provinces. It wasn't like this was seen as an affront to the Republic or anything, but regional rivalries remained in place. So, when the States General told Friesland that they should nominate him, they nominated Henry Casimir's younger brother instead because, screw you, you don't tell us what to do, you stinking Hollanders. Then the Frisians suggested to the States General of Groningen to also select Henry's brother, William Frederick, and Groningen was like, you're not any better than us, so no, we're going to pick the Prince of Orange as our stadholder. Then, in the following year, 1641, another series of generally non-noteworthy battles occurred, and again, someone of importance saw his end. This time, it was the Cardinal Infante Ferdinand, who became very ill during the fighting, and died in Brussels in November, at only 32 years old. But to highlight the exhaustion both sides must have felt in the conflict, Frederick William did not use the lack of a proper governor-general to launch some massive attack in 1642. Also that year, the English Civil War started, and despite the presence of the English Queen at The Hague and her daughter, the Dutch did not give much in the way of aid to Charles I. Frederick Henry may have wanted to do so, but the States General were not about to give blood and treasure to the Royalist side. It was, after all, a conflict that was similar to their own original fight back in William the Silence Day, at least in so much that it was a group of nobility trying to restrain their monarch from ruling absolutely and ignoring their established rights and privileges. By 1644, while combat had continued in some form or another, and actually Frederick Henry's son William had distinguished himself in some skirmishes, the opening rounds of negotiations to end the Thirty Years' War and the Eighty Years' War with it had begun. First, one more campaign, though. In 1645, the French sent an army toward Bruges, and with that force distracting the Spanish, Frederick Henry made for Hulst. Hulst, on the southern side of the Scheldt River, was taken by Maurice back in 1591, but Archduke Albert was able to recapture it five years later. It was yet another city with strong fortifications and a big garrison, which was considered to be very difficult to take. Arriving late in the season, once again Frederick Henry set his troops to work, this time using the surrounding rivers to aid his own defense. After less than a month, yet another impenetrable city surrendered to the besieging army. Hulst is now essentially on the border between the Netherlands and Belgium, in a part of Zeeland on the mainland called Zeelandic Flanders, for sort of obvious reasons. Negotiations to end the wars across Europe kicked off in earnest. Frederick Henry again was at the head of the army in 1646, but by 1647, he was a shell of himself. Suffering from gout for much of his life, he died in 1647. But the war was finally, truly winding down. I'll turn once more to Edmondson to summarize the prince's life in the saddle. Quote, His temper always led him to incline to methods of conciliation and to putting the best construction upon motives and actions. In the midst of the struggles and rivalries between the discordant factions and authorities which so often thwarted his dearest projects, he was never accused of harshness or unfair dealing, unquote. He goes on to describe Frederick Henry's weaknesses as well, writing that he could be at times politically dilatory and indecisive. 
But he was, in the end, a, quote, soldier whose daring courage led him repeatedly to expose his life in the forefront of danger, unquote. He was a general in the mold of his half-brother, cerebral, with the slow advances of siege works favored over any desire to engage the Spanish in set-piece battles. He was broadly successful in his military career, and he helped keep the borders of the United Provinces to the lines that Maurice set them, even expanding them a bit in places like Maastricht and Hulst. His effective leadership provided the bridge for Maurice to the end of the war. Frederick Henry's son William became William II, Prince of Orange, and stadtholder of most of the provinces. William didn't have to do much in this conflict. By the time Frederick Henry had died, deputies from The Hague were already in Munster, negotiating as equal partners with the other European powers. Their presence and recognition suggested de facto independence anyway. In 1648, the Peace of Westphalia solidified that, and the conflict ended. One of the constituent parts of this peace was called the Peace of Munster, a treaty between Spain and the Dutch Republic. In this, Spain formally recognized the United Provinces as an independent state in perpetuity. And the Dutch Republic was truly in its golden age, which lasted another half century or so. The Republic itself lasted in some form, sometimes more Republican, sometimes with the House of Orange behaving more like a monarchy, until 1795, when Napoleon started to run roughshod all over Europe. Today, the Netherlands is a kingdom, not a republic in the traditional sense, but rather a constitutional monarchy, like the United Kingdom. The current king of the Netherlands is a descendant of William the Silent and Frederick Henry, although the direct patrilineal descent ended with William III. William III, with no legitimate male heir, specified in his will that the Principality of Orange, down in France, would pass to John William Friso. Friso's father was the stadtholder of Friesland and the son of Countess Albertine Agnes, the sixth daughter of Frederick Henry. So Friso was, in fact, the great-grandson of Frederick Henry and the great-great-grandson of William the Silent. In 1702, Friso became the stadtholder of Friesland, but Holland and other provinces went without one. He died in 1711, and his son became William IV, Prince of Orange-Nassau. Thirty years later, after a period of significant decline, the Dutch Republic named him the hereditary stadtholder of all the provinces. His son, William V, was the last stadtholder because he lived during the Napoleonic Wars. William V's son, another William, is known today not as William VI, but rather as William I, because after Napoleon's defeat, he became the king of the Netherlands. And so, they felt the need to hit the reset button on the system of numeration for any and all Wilhelms that followed. The current king of the Netherlands styles his name as William Alexander, so he's not one of the numbered Williams. And with his eldest child being Katharina Amalia, Princess of Orange, and two daughters after that, you may have to wait a generation or two for a William IV if you are hoping for that sort of thing. But back to this country that fought for religious toleration, for adherence by Spain to their agreed-upon rights and privileges that had been in place for centuries, and eventually for independence. The Dutch Republic served as a model for future Republican forms of government, 
including the United States, where you can see traces of the act of abjuration in the Declaration of Independence. It wasn't a republic as we may think of one today. It would probably be best described as an oligarchy of patrician merchantmen and nobles. But it was, at the time, probably the largest amount of popular sovereignty any significant power had since Caesar returned from Gaul. Frederick Henry was a strong commander and a born leader, helping keep the Republic together at a time when it had wearied from a lifetime of war. His best victories were those that were reminiscent of his brother, calculated, seemingly impossible sieges that took patience and logistical brilliance. At a time when the Dutch Republic was becoming one of the leading world powers, he made sure it could be just that. Maurice had taken over after his father and could not compare to one of the greatest leaders of the age, but he was special in his own right. His abilities as a general and his willingness to innovate helped usher in a new era of warfare, and his abilities as a general got the Republic back on strong footing after it was greatly shaken by William's assassination. He retook significant lost territory and helped keep the Dutch Republic alive long enough to achieve de facto independence. And of course, there was William the Silent, who was a singular force, someone who was truly unique, someone who might be held up to give some credence to the great man theory. His presence gave the Dutch, including the sea beggars, something to fight for when they had nothing. His leadership held together the nascent republic when the Spanish were taking it all back, and it created the seeds of an independent republic through the Union of Brussels during the Spanish Fury. His legacy is that of the country itself, which could not have formed the way it did, at the time it did, without William. Together, this man and his two sons helped make the first real revolution of the modern era a success, and created a template for modern republics. And with that, it's time to say goodbye to the Dutch Republic and the Eighty Years' War. As I said at the outset of this, I never intended to make nine episodes on it, it was two on William and Maurice. But I just got two wrapped up in it, and here we are nine episodes and over eight hours later. I hope you enjoyed this season on it. Now it's time for me to take a break, start writing new episodes for next season, and hopefully I'll come back at the beginning of next year with a whole new set of individual episodes on almost forgotten individuals. And who knows, maybe I'll find a story that's worth writing two or three, or nine episodes about. Thanks for listening.